Welcome to the Architecture Podcast. Today, I have got a great guest for us. So in addition to my regular co-host, Eric Franchi, we have one of the most well-known and respected analysts in the mobile world, Eric Sufert, also a contributor to Architecture, a friend, and uh, and hopefully going to drop some knowledge on us. Eric, thanks for being here. Hey, Ari. Hey, Eric. I'm, uh, I'm very grateful for the invitation. I'm happy to be here. and I'm, I'm looking forward to... Uh... To what will no doubt be a uh, very interesting conversation. We're psyched to have you. So if you don't know Eric, you should subscribe to his newsletter, the Mobile Dev Memo. Uh, and if you're very nice to him, he might let you in his Slack channel as well, which is one of the most active Slack channels I've been talking about everything about mobile acquisition. So how did you get started in this, Eric? I don't think a lot of people know kind of your background. It's funny because, you know, a lot of people think maybe I started Mobile Dev Memo to chronicle the developments with with uh, with Apple's app tracking transparency policy, but but no, Mobile Dev Memo is like eleven years old. Well, it, it started out just as a personal blog, and I I kind of rebranded it. So I wrote a book called Freemium Economics, and it was published in 2014. And I rebranded that blog as as Mobile Dev Memo then. So it's existed for a long time, but I I ported all the blog posts over, so the content goes back to 2012. So the the real reason is I was working at a gaming startup. And I was not very optimistic about its fortunes. And I thought it would be a good idea to sort of like as a hedge to start writing a blog about how freemium games grow, how the freemium business model works, how to achieve distribution, how to achieve profitable unit economics and, and blog about all that stuff so that if the company failed, which it did, uh, there'd be like some artifacts of you know, knowledge that I could point to in finding another job. And so that was right. the, the, the sort of genesis. And, and it started out, and I wrote about those topics, right? It was very deep into, into kind of like the math of making freemium work. But the thing about freemium is that model, and, and I, when I say freemium, I'm, I'm referring to freemium apps, right? I, for the most part, that model is, is the, totally predicated on user acquisition, right? On, on profitable direct response marketing. That's how freemium products grow. It's almost like a, call it a law of physics or something. That's, that's how they grow, Right. That's what the freemium model facilitates, right? It, it facilitates super serving the most engaged and constitutionally relevant users. That's what freemium is. You get all of your revenue from some very, very tiny, often very tiny subset of, of users, and the rest are essentially free riders, right? So the, the, their, their use is subsidized by this subset that will pay. And, and so how do you, how do you ensure that the, the unit economics are profitable given that skew, which is often like in freemium apps, 95 to five in a best case scenario? Well, then you, you have to be able to find those, those users that will contribute money that, that are the most relevant to the, to the app. And the way you do that is with performance marketing, is with direct response performance marketing that is you know, supported by targeted advertising. And so, so those two concepts overlap. Yeah, because if you don't continue to do the user acquisition, your game will eventually die because uh, people will get tired of it. You know, people don't play games forever. It attrits. And there's really no way to sustain a game in that category purely on word of mouth, virality, et cetera. I, I, would, I would just, you know, point out here that I'm not exclusively talking about games. I mean, I'm talking about all freemium apps, right? So not just games, but, but yes, right? So it, the, the problem is, so virality comes with its own burden right? Virality can actually be really corrosive, right? Because it's not under your control by definition, right? And so what you see a lot of times, and I think Clubhouse is a really great example of this. I was thinking about Clubhouse when you said that. 
which an app that's not ready for prime time takes off virally. You churn out users that might have been engaged with, you know, the full functional suite, right, that you plan to build. And it's very difficult to get them back. Right. And so the problem and, and if you go like, you know, just just, you know, whatever, you, like if you have a clubhouse type experience, you can't stop that. Right. You can't right. slow that down. That's out of your control. And if everyone burns through your product and thinks, well, you know, this was kind of novel, but, you know, there was nothing really retentive about it. There was there, there's nothing there that would cause it to become a habit for me. You've potentially burned through your entire total addressable market. Right. And then you have. And then, and then how do you win those users back? You know, they're not going to be viral again, right? Yeah. Um, so you have to acquire them. And, and acquiring them will be much more expensive, right, for the second pass than it would have been if you had sort of like built this product and, and, and built out the feature set and built out, you know, this robust experience and then tried to acquire those users. So, so virality, it, it can be a double-edged sword. And, and, and what you see a lot of times with these, especially, you know, games, but apps, a lot of apps um, that have gone, you know, truly gone viral, right, is that it was a shark fin, right? It, right there's right. very few apps that go viral and then are, you know, and then sort of are sustained by that. I think it's also kind of impossible to get consumers to give you a second chance. Um, if they download the app, they try it, and then it's meh, they're not going back no matter what happens. I don't think there's any examples of that. And then it leaves uh, in its wake, you know, people like Matt Barish with his clubhouse following. Because there's one, there's one other piece here that, that I think is important. The qualities of an app, or I think kind of any product, the qualities of a product that allow it to go viral are actually sort of antithetical to the qualities of an app that features strong retention, right? That's another problem, right? So if an app is, is if an app experience or a product experience is like, there's a lot of depth to it, the sort of content density to support strong retention, um, those apps are very difficult to to make go viral, right? Because it, it that just sort of like you know that that learning curve, right? Like there there's the 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 onboarding experience requires like almost like an investment on the user's part, right? And so those apps tend to not go viral. So the qualities that make a product viral also tend to work against that app in terms of just yeah. uh, creating a stickiness with the user base that allows it to be compounded, right? Absolutely, yeah. The uh, retention is a key part of the economics because if you retain users longer. You have more long-term value, and therefore you can spend more to acquire them, and your ratios still work out. Um, but let, let's talk about everyone's favorite topic, ATT, uh, <laughs> Apple ATT. So what is, like, at big picture, is the world ended? <laughs> I would say ending, but is it ended? Like, is the, I, I've seen numerous announcements from, uh, on your newsletter and elsewhere that people say, you know, the age of hyper-casual is over, that uh, the economics don't make sense anymore, things like that. What's the landscape look like uh, for mobile acquisition? Well, no, it's not. I mean, it you know, the entire world has a smartphone, right? And that's that's true, right? There's there are seven, there's you know, whatever seven billion yeah. devices out there, one billion iPhones. That those don't instantly become bricked, right? They're not useful. <laughs> it, I got the economics, <laughs> right? No, I get it, but it, it's 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 yes, yeah, some some categories of, of products will go away. Some categories of products owe their genesis to the sort of targeted advertising that was made available by Facebook, right? And that's not just apps either. That's a lot of D2C, um, a lot of e-com, right? And they owe their existence to that, right? I wrote a right. piece a couple years ago. I remember Ch Chamath had a bee in his bonnet about the fact that 40% of the money that he 
you know, invested into startups was being spent on Facebook and Google ads. And I said, isn't that such a good thing? Isn't that wonderful? Right? That should be a reaction, right? It should be antipathy. It should be gratitude. Thank you, Facebook and Google, for creating this pathway to aggregating an audience. Thank you yep. for giving this pathway to a very large uh, and lucrative market. Because absent that, these companies would not be investable at all. Yep. Right. And that was my point. I talked about DDC specifically because that was kind of the DDC, you know, I think at that, at that point, it was like 2018, that was like the peak of DDC. And so, well, what happens when those tools are blunted, right? What happens when those tools are degraded? Well, then those categories similarly will, you know, see some sort of attenuation or, or negative impact. Right. And so, you know, it's not death of everything. It's death of the things that were very, very dependent on those pathways to the market, right? On those targeted ad products that, you know, have been improving sort of very consistently year over year since like 2016, right? And so if you look at the performance improvements that those tools facilitated and the growth that those tools facilitated, well, then you can intuit, right? Then, you know, the degradation of those tools or the elimination of those tools will have a similarly negative impact, right? Um, and so you just kind of look at the, the spectrum and I wrote a piece about this like in 2020 before ATT went into effect. And I said, look, uh, it's called uh, IDFA deprecation winners and losers, right? And I just took the entire spectrum of mobile and I categorized it. And I tried to have like, you know, impact assessments for each, you know, subcategory. And it was just red, green, yellow, right? And a lot of the reds were the categories, the portions of the spectrum that were totally dependent on that paradigm, on that targeted advertising paradigm on the paradigm of let me build a profile of a user that captures their purchasing proclivities and let me use that profile to target ads to them and then also to assemble uh, lookalike audiences on that basis that's how you should i think that's how you should think about att and its impact but i also want to make another point just quickly it's it's really easy to sort of place i don't want to say place the blame but to think about att as like the singular instigation of this, but it's not, right? ATT is just ahead of this wave of restrictions that are inevitable and were inevitable prior to ATT being launched or announced, right? And so I think, you know, it's a sea change. It's, it's not ATT. It's, it's a totally new paradigm about how user data is collected and is activated, right? And I think in a lot of ways, that's a really good thing for consumers. Um, and so, you know, marketers, you know, you can stomp your feet and hate ATT. And you can you can point to what I think are, you know, very credible questions around Apple's motivations with ATT. But you can't blame ATT singularly for these changes. Sure. I mean, I think like if you think about the mobile uh, device innovation as like the giant technical S-curve, as the VCs like to call it, in a sense, like Facebook ads were like a mini S-curve on top of that. And then that <laughs> that flattened out. And on a, a little bit unexpectedly, it caused lots of carnage. Who knew that like selling a mattress was dependent on Facebook, right? Right. Yeah, D2C, the D2C business seemed like a great investable category, an excited category. And then uh, it turns out is overly dependent on one supplier. The, unfortunately, there was a supplier of customers. So you brought up Facebook. So we have a little controversy here on the Market Picture Podcast. Uh, so last week, I don't know if you listened, uh, we had uh, Brian... Weezer? Uh, Franti, help me out here. I, I, I screwed up his name last week. The Weiser? Weiser? Who is a you know, very well-respected guru about predicting advertising spend and the global advertising spending. 
And he sort of poo-pooed the impact of ATT on Facebook's top line revenue. I, I believe your current estimate is somewhere in the seven to nine percent range. You could correct me in a second. And Brian was saying he thinks it's much lower, like two percent. And the rest of the the and the other fortunes of Facebook are other factors. So without, I would love to hear your current estimate for what did ATT do to Facebook, and you know roughly how you came up with that number. Right. So the the seven percent number comes from an article that I wrote in 2021, right, January 2021. This this is prior to ATT going into effect, right? It was called Facebook may take seven percent revenue hit from Apple privacy changes, and basically what I did was, so I I created you know three scenarios, right? So there's a best case, base case, and worst case. And the seven percent was a base case, but that was for the first quarter of impact, and then it it decreased from there. The worst case was 13.6, and the best case was was two, right? So, and, and keep in mind, these are headwinds, right? So this yeah. is the headwind. So you'd net that out against the growth rate, right? So, right. okay, here's how I approach this. And that article approaches it in a similar way, but let me just describe my thought process, right? So let me just start with, and this is just a, a first principles analysis. If, if you, if you want to dive into the data, <laughs> right? So like, there's a difference between just making a statement and then making an argument, right? And so what I'll do here is I'll just kind of go through the first principles but I won't bore everyone with like, you know, the, the sort of data that I would bring to, to support an argument. The data that I would bring to support an argument is available in an article that I wrote that was, you know, widely read called the App Tracking Transparency Recession. And I wrote that much more recently. That was last month or the month before. Right. And there I'm, I sort of vigorously interrogate this question uh, as I make an argument. And, and I'll get to like what the argument was in a second. But, but that's where I would suggest people go if they really want to dig into the data. Right. And that's a data based argument. Right. So now if, if, if someone comes to me and they have data that contradicts that argument, then I'm happy to hear that. Right. But what I would say is just starting from first principles. So let's let's start with a pro- proposition one. Did Facebook collect large amounts of user data to use in targeted advertising? Do, do we agree that 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 is true? I, I think that's true. Do we all agree? Sure. Agreed. Okay. All right. So we're all agreed on proposition one. Proposition two. Is did. Facebook's enterprise in collecting user data for the purposes of ads targeting, did that provide benefit, right? Was that, was that valuable to them? Did, did that provide benefit to their advertising business? Right now, I would say yes. <laughs> Do we all agree? Yes. Yes, we all agree. But I, I can support that. Like, so, I, so I would say if, if you question that, um, I wrote an article in 2017, Right. So before ATT was on anyone's radar, I wrote an article called Facebook's app event optimization tool showcases the power of its data in Q1 earnings. And so this was looking at what happened to ARPU when Facebook introduced AEO. Right. So app event optimization. So that allowed Facebook to take these events, these specific conversions from users, collect them from pixels, from SDKs, use them to build a profile of users you know, around this, this history of conversions and then target on that basis. Right. And if you look at what happened when they did that, right? The growth rate, the ARPU growth rate in the US and Canada, which matched worldwide, right? So the growth rates are, were roughly similar. So the US and Canada growth rate matched the overall worldwide growth rate, ARPU, right? On an ARPU basis. Until, Wait, what was this? Uh, this so is... we're talking Q1 2017. Okay. So the change from Q1 to Q2 in ARPU, ARPU growth rate, Q1 to Q2 for US and Canada and worldwide was roughly the same. It was a high 15% right? For both, for both those buckets. And then Q2 to Q3 after AEO had been implemented, 
the U.S. and Canada growth, ARPU growth rate was double that of worldwide. Now, I would attribute that, right? And that matched almost precisely when AEO was introduced, right? And you can imagine that AEO would be more valuable in the U.S. and Canada because that's where more of the conversions are coming from on like a per capita basis, right? They're going to have more of that per capita in that group, right? And so the growth rate doubled. It was double that of worldwide, right? And so I would attribute that to AEO. And so I would say, yes, that's support for the idea that we all agree that they collected the data. And that's support for the idea that the data helped them. It helped them target and helped them produce revenue, right? Okay, so that yep. predict, uh, that's proposition two. Now, proposition three is, does ATT prevent Facebook from collecting that data? And I think that's just demonstrably true. I, I don't, first of all, why would they do it if it didn't? If it didn't do that, if it didn't accomplish that, why would they even do it? But second of all, I mean, you can, you can look at what ATT does and it, it severs those two sort of endpoints from being able to transmit data between each other by removing yep. the IDFA. And then also layering all this policy on top of that to prevent other identifiers from being used. So if, if we all do, we all agree that that HTT does that. Absolutely, confirm. So then, so, so then I think we're all in agreement that HTT could, uh, uh, you know, a sort of severe impact on Facebook's business. If we're all in agreement there, then then we can just look at the data. Like if we all sort of agree on these propositions, then we can just look at the data and what has happened to Facebook's business. Well, it it, it has been you know severely impaired recently now and and roughly in alignment with the rollout of att right now is it just a coincidence is it the only factor no of course not of course it's not the only factor and i make that point in the att recession i say of course the sort of covid reversion to the mean in terms of user behaviors has also created a headwind but the thing is with the att recession i point out well we can actually isolate those impacts in some ways right and we can say, well, like Google search is, is not really impacted by ATC at all. It just isn't, right? It's, you know, browser-based. No. For the, and so we'll look at the change in growth rates for Google search versus YouTube, which is, that's part of UAC. That's Google's um, uh, app install product, right? But also e-com advertises there. And there was that, that feedback loop with conversions. And the, the YouTube, starting from a much lower baseline, saw a much sort of like larger headwind in its growth rates than search did. Well, what else explains that, right? Because COVID would impact both, right? So that was the point I'm making the app tracking transparency recession. So I would say like, uh, uh, if, if, you know, that's, that's my sort of vigorous data-based argumentation there. But I think if you just look back to this stuff that I've been running for a couple of years, I've been making the point for a couple of years that, wow, these products that Facebook rolled out and Google rolled out too, uh, they really improved performance. And so if you believe that, then you'd have to believe that if those products were essentially disabled, that the performance would suffer to roughly the same magnitude. So, so if you had to be pinned down to a number, what, what percentage did Facebook's growth decline? I think it's, it's high. I think it's the worst case. I think it was around 12%, 12 to 15%. I think it was very wow. serious. And, and the thing is, look, you know, these, I'm, I'm sort of walking you through like, you know, abstract theoretical exercises here. Just go talk to anybody. Yep. Just go talk yep. to anybody that runs Facebook ads. Whose, whose business was dependent on that. And they'll tell you this was devastating. And you could talk to like a brand advertiser or someone at a big agency that works for Coca-Cola and they'd say, what's ATT? What are you talking about? You know what I mean? And so like you have to kind of think about this from the perspective of what is the goal of that marketer. And, and so for direct response, especially for categories that were heavily dependent on Facebook and, and other platforms like that, Snap, TikTok, uh, Google UAC, right? They would tell you the same thing. Right now, if you go talk to a brand advertiser, they'd say, I've, it's had no impact. I don't know what you're talking about. What's ATT? I, I never even heard of that. And, and they'd be right too. Now, the question is, what proportion of Facebook's revenue is brand versus direct response? I think it's vast majority direct response, probably like 
right? Now for Snap, it's not. Snap is lower, right? And YouTube's lower. But Facebook specifically was vulnerable to this, right? Given the high reliance on direct response and the fact that they were just, frankly, better at doing this than a lot of other, um, at a yeah. lot of other platforms. I want to move on from this. Let's, let's talk about investing. So some of our listeners may not know that, Eric, you also run a small VC fund that focuses on mobile uh, called Heracles Capital. Um, I am actually an LP in that, so um, I'm a little excited about that. So what's inv- given the carnage, and uh, Franti, you jump in here too, what's investable in mobile user acquisition or mobile advertising or this whole world? Isn't it, isn't it something you'd want to stay away from? That's this is an area where we're not um, extremely deep in or, or focused on. So um, I actually want to you know ping it back to Eric S in, in a second. But you know, good timing. There was uh, an article on Ad Exchanger this week. We can put it in the show notes that you know points to the disparity in mobile gaming ad spend or overall gaming ad spend relative to like time spent by users or user engagement. And it was actually really interesting. Ba- basically. You know, people spend as much time um, playing games as they do on social media and slightly less than they do like watching TV. Yet the growth of gaming ads was like 7% versus the growth of social ads, 16%, and the growth of CTV, 30 something percent. So, you know, it, it just seems to me like a category that has uh, yet really been embraced from an ads perspective. And I don't know if that's a data thing, I don't know if that's uh, advertiser education thing. I don't know if it's like just the inherent nature of it. Is it less conducive to performance-based ads or, or brand-based ads? So it's it's somewhat confounding to me. And as a result, you know, it's an area that, you know, we, we continue to, to look at. I think there's an area that, you know, we've got a couple of companies in the portfolio that are, there's like picks and shovels for, you know, a la ad serving, so on and so forth. But, you know, it seems like, you know, a space that is uh, is just a little bit tough just because the investment hasn't yet been there relative to other spaces. So again, sort of like Eric would love the, the meta thoughts on that. So I would say that the, the fund one, Heracles Capital Fund one was, was very much thesis driven around this, right? So like it, the pitch, and, and this was, you know, I, I raised the fund after, after ATT went into effect. Pitch was this privacy sea change is going to reshuffle the, the mobile ecosystem, like, like fundamentally. And there will be companies that lose a lot of market share, and there will be companies that essentially have to pivot or can't operate in the way that they were. And there, there will be new opportunities to do a lot of a lot of things that were part of the marketing workflow in a way that hews to the the new privacy reality, right? And and I will invest in those things because I know mobile really well. That was my pitch. And so, you know, for instance, I've been uh, really excited by a number of different, uh, you know, privacy safe. Uh, measurement tools like ads, ads measurement tool. So, so things that use more of like an economic, econometric approach to to measurement, to new formats that fit into the product experience without being very disruptive, right? Because th- there'd be there'd be an expectation, right, that if the the value of these ads decreases, that you have to increase ad load, right? I, l- I wrote a piece a couple months ago, um, you know, and I was talking about Facebook's Facebook's pivot, right? So Facebook's transition to the um, open graph and and short form video. And I said, basically, there's, you know, there's, there's four ways for uh, any sort of ad platform to grow revenue, to grow advertising revenue versus increase ad load, right? There are problems with that. Like you, you know, that there, there are consequences of doing that, right? You can increase churn. The second is to increase reach. So just get more users into the, into the product and, 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 and keep ad load the same or, 
then there's the increase of value generated by ads, and that would be just to bring a lot more data to bear in, in, in pricing the ads and, and matching the right ad to the right person. And then finally, the increased engagement, increased session time, increased time spent. Right now, though, they're not mutually exclusive. You could have some combination of those, right? But um, I think you know, we're seeing now that, that increasing ad load has been a tactic that many of these platforms have used. Like Facebook is a good example. YouTube is a good example. But, but basically, everyone is having to do that, right? And if you have to increase ad load, well, then the ads probably need to be less intrusive. Right, because if increasing ad load tends to tends to lead to increases in churn, right? So just new formats like that, um, and then content that is better suited to this privacy environment. So, like for instance, we talked about hyper casual games. Yeah, my belief is that this changing privacy environment has made it almost impossible for that category to 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 operate profitably. And my sense is that's supported by a number of like the biggest hyper casual games saying hyper casual is dead. For instance, Voodoo said at a, you know, the, the VP of publishing, I think, at Voodoo, which is a big hyper games, hyper casual games publisher, said, yeah, hyper casual is dead. They said that at a crime. Right. Um, but a number of those companies have said the same thing. We're all pivoting, right? And I, I believe that's that's the reason, right? So what well, what content is really conducive to to being distributed in this environment? I think it's just like going really casual. It's going really main so instead of like, but but also with some monetization heft, right? So hyper casual is very, very easy to get the install. Right. Again, it had that that lack of depth that makes it easy to get people to click on the ad and, and go viral um, and monetizing entirely through ads. And I think one thing that people don't appreciate about the hyper casual category is that it's the majority of ad revenue generated by that category was within the category. So it was hyper casual games buying traffic from other hyper casual games. Right. So almost like a like a like a watch trade type situation. But it was it was supported. Right. It was buoyed by the the very extreme hardcore games. Uh, doing IDFA sniping, right? So they were buying programmatically and they were looking for IDFAs that were known to them and they were buying them from those hyper casual games because the the average, you know, sort of like the 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 competition was was less for those, right? So less less for those impressions. Yeah. So I'm I'm just sort of shocked that I have two venture capitalists on this podcast. You haven't actually name checked any of your actual investments. You got to the value add is you got to give name the name. Oh yeah. Well. <laughs> Sure. Uh, happy to do that. I didn't want to be obnoxious. But um, so I, I invested in a company called Incremental, and this was uh, in their pre-seed round when it was very, very difficult to sort of convince VCs that you know this was a, a viable business. They're, they do incrementality measurement, like, like online right. incrementality measurement. And they just raised their A. Uh, so I went, okay. I, was, I was in the, the pre-seed and then uh, the pre-seed extension and then, oh, sorry, it was a seed. I'm sorry, they raised their seed. Uh, anyway. You know, I've done a number of, of gaming investments um, where I think the content, you know, is is well suited for this privacy environment. So a company bit odd there uh, out of Helsinki, uh, where I used to live. The the CEO is the former. He was the the principal PM on Clash of Clans. Uh, Assetario, it's a it's a tool that allows uh, app developers, game developers to personalize ad experiences for players kind of in real time. Again, that's another piece of this yeah. impact here. If the cap goes up, then you have to get more money from people. And if if the the users that you're acquiring are sort of like more anonymous, more heterogeneous, then you have to actually personalize the experience versus versus personalizing the ad that you show them. Uh, yeah. Firmat Commerce they do sort of uh, the same thing. I call it you know content fortress in a box. That's a I you know an idea I came up with. But basically, they allow um, you to use on site data to to target the the ecom ads. Anyway, I could go on and on. I don't want to yeah sure. Ed Franchi, you're in Cargo. Is that your uh, one of your mobile plays? That's correct. Cargo with a with a C. It is a uh, a shopping app. Yeah, I'm I'm in that 
too. Uh, and I think I'm also in Monetizer, which is a cool like mobile ad network that focuses on brands. Um, so good shout outs there. Um, so we have a lot, <laughs> there's so much we can talk about. So one thing I do want on a little bit of a lighter note, um, at the, we had lunch last week at the old town bar and Eric, uh, you told me this funny story about how you built an ad optimization system for Facebook using video clips, like just random video clips. Do you want to tell our audience about that? Cause I just think it's kind of an amusing little technical story. So I had a, I had started a company called Agamemnon and it was like a, analytics platform for mobile advertising teams but it was really more of like a bi tool so it did like cash flow projections it was totally privacy safe you, you used cohort aggregates you didn't use any personally identifiable data um but anyway it just allowed you to like sort of project out revenues because the thing with with running ua team you know ua for you know a lot of these successful companies ua is the biggest like app companies it's the biggest single line item expense right more than right, salary right and so you're spending a lot of money up front to recoup it over a year or whatever, nine months, a year, um, whatever the LTV projection is or whatever, you know, you've decided to use, you know, w- with your own cash management system. And, and so like you're, 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 anyway, you're, you're bearing a big upfront cost and you're recouping that over time. Right. And so you could very easily understand a position where like, Hey, we're buying profitably in the sense that we're paying a dollar for a user and we're going to get a dollar 50 back, but we're spending so much money up front that we're going to run out of cash. Right. To do that. And so this, this tool was just purpose of it was to sort of allow you to map the cash flows out to understand um, where the sweet spot was, right? Like where the optimum right. spend level was. Anyway, so that got acquired and I, 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 by a mobile gaming company and I was building like a platform to, you know, automate UA or to, to automate a lot of it. And um, what, what we realized was we were spending so much money on UA for this one game, right? I think we spent $80 million in 2018 on one game, UA for one game. Uh, and it was only mobile, right? So it's just, just installs. And the, what we realized was the, the, the true bottleneck was creative. It was, it was the volume of creative assets that we had, right? Because what Facebook at that time and, and UAC, which is Google's app install product, and some of the other platforms were really good at doing was identifying like the sub audiences that uh, were like sort of most relevant for our game. But we had to actually, the way to drive the sort of, the, to maintain the economics while you're driving the, the volume of installs was to match those you know groups of people with like creative that would fit you know whatever their interests are and and so there's no way to preempt that you just test you just experiment and so i built this tool called draper the the sort of most primitive version of it was we just dumped a bunch of video assets in a folder right and we 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 had bought we had purchased them from some stock video website so we had like i don't know a thousand and we dumped them in a folder and we wrote a script that basically took us we had a separate folder with just in-game in-game footage and then we had uh, this footage, uh, all this just generic footage, and we would just stitch, we would just make random combinations, just truly really random. Really? And so we'd just yeah. make a permu- every permutation possible of all these different clips, and then dump them into a Facebook ad set and let Facebook do its magic um, in a test environment. And then we'd find the stuff, and we'd just filter out the stuff that worked, and then we'd promote that to like another ad account that, that actually put money behind it, like real money. And so what, so what performed? Right, so uh, what I think what you're referring to in this, in when we had lunch was, and, and again, we didn't know we didn't know anything about these clips. We didn't want to know. That's the point, right? And actually, I actually took this idea from a book I read called "The Man Who Solved the Market," Jim Rogers, the founder of Renaissance Technologies. And his like epiphany was that I don't need to know anything about these stocks. I'm just going to look at the movement, and I can I can I don't need to know what the company does that makes the stock. If I want to trade these stocks algorithmically, I can do that by just looking at previous pattern, right? And so that was my idea with this. Like, I don't want to have to intuit anything about what creative will work. I don't know, and I can't know. And so I'm just going to try everything. And so anyway, 
one week, I mean, we did this every week and it was like two, two or 300 assets every week, but one week, the, the winning creative was just a video of gameplay. Then that cuts to a video of a woman doing squats and then more video of gameplay. And like, that was it. And like, I didn't make that. I, I, I didn't, uh, I didn't say, Hey, you know what? I bet, I bet women doing squats will generate. I didn't, I didn't have any knowledge a priori of what that was. It just happened to work. And so that was like a, an aha moment. Like, we don't know. You can never intuit what creative is going to resonate. You, you shouldn't try. You should just test them. The internet never misses. And you're going to be canceled for this, so congratulations. Yeah, I mean, that's not... <laughs> just to point out, again, I didn't I didn't personally... Like, this wasn't like art yeah. you, uh, from my hand, right? This was just random output. It's like the meme. There was a meme going around, or it was actually just facts, that uh, over time, the ads for a given game would get raunchier and raunchier and and the princess in the game's cleavage would show more and more of being just because the algorithm would tell the marketers to do that well let's do just, to, just to, to yeah. on that point that's exactly what happened that was the fake ads phenomenon you've seen this you've yeah. seen like it's not it's not just like the the lascivious stuff it's just really weird disturbing stuff it's like you it, know this woman's about to drown you better say yeah. that and that's the ad and then you click and it's like a farming simulator you know what <laughs> i mean that's that's that fake ads phenomenon but that's exactly the point there's a lot of people that like true marketers who were like, you know, probably disturbed by my, my view of this, of our, of our shared uh, pursuit here, which is that I'm not trying to tell a story. I'm not trying to convince you. I'm not trying to sell you anything. I am trying to activate some impulse in your lizard brain that causes you to click. That is my yeah. goal. Right. And I'm not wearing a beret and thinking up uh, like some sort of like multi-part narrative of an ad flow or anything. I'm saying, let's just let's just try to activate that lizard brain. And you, the consumer, won't even know when you click. But I'll have just combined some set of pixels in such a way that you do. There are a lot of machine learning engineers who wear berets. So I just want to defend them on that front. Let's talk artwork for this episode. Yeah. <laughs> um. So, uh, so Franchi, um, was there any news this week? It was a pretty quiet week. Quiet week. Uh, just kick back, feet up, you know, <laughs> not, uh, not, not furiously trying to uh, understand the banking system. Yeah, so you're right in the middle of it. What's the ad tech angle here? Yes, yeah, so we're recording this on uh, Thursday, March 16th, a week ago. Um, today, uh, there were rumors of SVB uh, shutting down being taken over by the government and 24 hours hours later that happened chaos panic ensued the ad tech angle here i think is uh is probably twofold so number one ad week and again we can put this in the show notes they, they had a you know, pretty interesting piece about how publishers and sort of like healthy ecosystem there's some ad tech companies that are accelerating payments to publishers right now just from a cash flow management perspective and then oryx and it's just you know sort of like big credit uh, facility company that's uh, always been looming. Um, they're seeing like spikes in, in inbound. So I think, you know, that's interesting. I think the, the real thing here, you know, SVB was a uh, you know, super important bank to the ecosystem from two perspectives. Number, you know, number one, you know, a lot of venture capital firms uh, used SVB to, um, you know, just like run the sort of day-to-day operations, right? So to the extent that you know, there's uh, interruptions in access to capital and, you know, rethinking of banking strategies. Like, you know, I think investment probably sort of like goes on pause for a little bit, but but I think comes back. But then on the other side, a lot of startups use SVB. They said up to 50% of startups. I think it's a little bit more like 30% yeah. that you know, I've seen from like YC and even within our own portfolio. And beyond the banking, SVB was the largest venture debt provider 
which many startups, um, particularly you know, sort of like post seed, um, would tap into for a source of non dilutive access to, to capital. So with that done, I think um, that's somewhat concerning. You could potentially see the sort of uh, that being the acceleration of things like you know layoffs and down rounds and and, and shutdowns. So I think the the venture debt piece I'm looking at. I think on the other side of it, you know, this uh, I think just you know will probably spark some innovation around fintech that uh, is probably well needed. AdTech and Martech are are marketplaces similar to the financial marketplace, uh, and there are receivables and payables in many directions. But it hasn't in the past had anything you might think of as a contagion. Um, one ad tech business going out of business is bad, but it doesn't have a domino effect where other ad tech businesses suddenly can't make payroll. Now, theoretically, it is possible that could happen if a big enough ad tech company were to default. But in general, the impact on various people has been you know, manageable. There have been clawbacks. There have been mispaid bills, unpaid bills. I'm yet to hear of any sort of horror stories in the ad tech world. My fear there was so well, or not. Yeah, so I looked into this a couple of months ago. So on the e-com and D2C side, like a lot of this UA spend or ad spend uh, is financed, right? On on the on the app UA side, it, that's true too. But um, on the on the e-com side, it's you have a line of credit with one of these companies that does this kind of. It's basically receivables financing. It's it's back right, but some of it has evolved to just being like looking on the basis of past cohorts lending money, right? And the question to me was, I, I never got far enough it just felt like it wasn't systemic enough to have an opportunity to like you know make money on it but as an as a trading idea but i never got far enough to understand who was lending the money right so if that was svb which i wouldn't be surprised if it was these companies wouldn't have access to those lines of credit anymore and they would just have to stop spending yeah in ad tech there's always been sort of this cottage industry of factors that focus on the on the area i think fast pay and orax are two of them that are very well known but it's never been really that great a business or it hasn't been made into a great business and i think there is opportunity for innovation in uh, fintech for ad tech we're gonna see it yeah we're gonna see it another piece of news so digiday reported an interesting story that not six months past the big blockbuster announcement that uh netflix was depending on microsoft for its ad stack and its ad sales um, that they're getting a little itchy and they're looking for alternatives, looking to build their own ad server by. And the article specifically mentions my former colleague and friend, John Whittacombe, who used to be the CPO of Freewheel, is working as an advisor to Netflix in this effort. I don't know, hot takes? I, I have a bunch. Uh, Fraji, maybe you, any hot takes on this? Yeah, I think it's it's interesting. Um Thinking about Netflix as an acquirer of ad tech um, is, you know, somewhat logical when you when, when you think about it. But um, you know, they're they're brand new to the entire ecosystem. So I think uh, hiring somebody with real chops to help them, you know, go through the build by partner exercise is correct. And you know, as a strategic acquirer, Netflix could acquire anything that they wanted across the Lumascape. So I think right. it gets interesting because you can now, I mean, basically any company would not be too large to be absorbed by Netflix. And, you know, I think you know, it's A, acquiring the the tech, but then B, what does that mean for the legacy business? And is it a, you know, really important scale business that they take out? It could end up being a bit of a reshuffling of the deck. So it's um, it's super yeah. interesting. I have a lot of takes. I'll, I'll just run through my takes pretty fast. The first take is there's not too many people to buy. If you're looking for publisher side video ad serving well there's not too many people to buy the leader of free will is very big and part of comcast 
Google, obviously. SpringServe got acquired by Magnite, and uh, Publica got acquired by Integral Ad Science. Those two would have been certainly top of the list. There just aren't that many options. Second take, I would say, is I think my opinion is that this is a little bit of Silicon Valley, not vented here syndrome. Uh, that Netflix believes it at its heart that it's a tech company and should build its own tech, but there's really no good reason to. Uh, their advertising needs are probably going to be pretty simple, and they could probably be very well served by a Freewheel or by Xander, who they're already working with, but they probably feel like they need to own it in a sort of irrational way. And in addition, they don't want to be dependent on Comcast, who obviously in the long view is a direct competitor to to Netflix. So um, I think they're kind of forcing themselves at this decision. Uh, Eric S., any thoughts? Yeah, I mean, this is not really in my wheelhouse. I, I think, um, but, I, you know, we did a Twitter spaces on this, right, when it first got announced, you, you me, and, right. and Barash. And, and, I mean, I think that the general consensus at that time was that this was probably a temporary, like using Xander was probably a temporary solution. And they're probably going to build their own ad tech. So, it, you know, it feels like that's just, just coming to, feels that way. To, to, to fruition here. So what do we think? Is this a build or is this a is this a buy? Because partner seems to, you know, have, you know, frankly sort of, you know, kind of served its purpose again and kickstarted, but doesn't seem to be the path going forward. So build or buy? Go first, sorry. I don't see any targets for buy. I don't think there are any good targets. So I say build. Eric S. I, I, I would say build. Interesting. Okay. What do you um, say? You know, I think there is probably one or two targets out there, um, but uh, you know you need to sort of peg the odds of successful M and A always uh, against you. So you're probably right; it's probably the the build rack. There is a sort of a option to buy someone who's not directly an ad server, but it's exactly. in the bit in the video market. Someone like an asset AI provider, um, server side ad inclusion um, is sort of this back room aspect of ad serving video and there some of those companies are not directly affiliated with ad servers but now i'm really talking off the reservation so one more <laughs> tra- 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 transmit transmit is uh is a portfolio oh, yeah. and they've they've got um a lot of great assets and you know i think uh line tree made a made a great uh you know strategic uh investment but it's an interesting company all right we got it we got a target last piece of news i bring up that i caught my eye so Uber and their continued effort to become an ad network, everything is the ad network, a little hat tip to Eric on that one. They announced their self-service portal for buying ads on the top of the cars. So car top ads um, in some jurisdictions are allowed. And it's an interesting space because it's digital out of home, which has not been the most liquid market historically, programmatically, and it's hard to measure. And there's a lot of interesting aspects to it. I guess I would put it in the context of, is this digital out of homes moment um, after, you know, 20 years of people talking about it? Or am I just being too excited about this? Yeah, I think digital out of home is having a moment. I think it's, you know, growing faster than, you know, other formats. I don't think that ads on top of cars are the, are the killer app, nor do I think that this might even fit for the customer base of uh, Uber ads that, you know, seem to be a lot of performance-based companies that are you know very focused on the the app experience. So I know they're thinking about the art. The, the article was, was interesting. You know, thinking about you know how do you incorporate this into some sort of like multi-touch attribution spin. But it seems to be a stretch that you know taxis or, or, or Ubers rather you know, whizzing by in, in New York City um, are going to be like a great ad format um, for uh, a, a performance market or l- let alone uh, a brand. 
yeah, I, I, it's just, I, I think it's just one component of their push into advertising, which, you know, per the every, everything is an end at work, you know, slogan or whatever is, is it's pretty pervasive, right? But I, I think digital out of home is really exciting right now. I mean, in, in part because of that, everything is an ad network trend, right? It's, it's these direct response marketers have to go up funnel and they have to build the measurement tools that allow them to, to measure that. And, you know, but if you do that, the problem before was like Facebook was just such a crutch. And, you know, the, the, the social DR channels were such a crutch. You were very much like moored to that type of channel. And a lot of companies built all of their infrastructure around that. And the, it's, it's actually, you know, you can be very optimistic about the, the companies that are able to make that transition. Because if you build the kind of measurement tools that you need to operate in this environment, you know, again, no user level identity. Just, right. just to- totally uh, sort of anonymized, uh, aggregated cohort level data. If you build that, then, then the whole world is your billboard, right? You can do out of home, you can do TV, <laughs> you can do radio. If you build the tools to achieve that measurement with the digital channels now, the good news is you can apply those everywhere. And so I think there's like, there's a good reason to be optimistic about the state of digital advertising as that happens, right? And now it's going to be measurement led and not everyone can do that. And I think this advantage is like the bigger companies. But if you can, if you can make that transition on the measurement side, then you can, the, the surface area of your deployment expands. And that's, that's, that's really exciting. Um, there was this slight renaissance in digital at home, uh, maybe 10 to five years ago, because the mobile devices had rich location data and you could rent that location data very easily. You could correlate it to billboards and then create conversions. Luckily for privacy advocates and for the world at large, that that loophole kind of went away, and there's far less location data available, and uh, and so that kind of that method of buying these ads kind of went away, right? Which I, I agree very, is a good thing. That's a, that's a it's good a good thing. thing. Yeah, <laughs> I, it's it's very it's very context uh, specific, very context driven, right? So where you might not think ads on top of Uber is um, are the right play. You know, we've talked about this before. We had an investment in uh, Octopus, which was acquired by T-Mobile. Ads inside, when you've got a user that, you know, is all for all intents and purposes, you know, not saying this is in the wrong way, like captive, right? Like what else are they going right. to do except stare at that fo- their phone, i.e. the Uber app, or stare at a tablet on the headrest, i.e. an Octopus or the like. I think that becomes a really interesting ad medium. We've got an investment in a, you know, a, a business called Tave. It's very, very early stage. Um, you know, they do uh, essentially sort of like connected TV inside bars and restaurants. The, the sort of ROI that they can point to just having like an engaged audience is pretty is pretty interesting. So it becomes a little bit less about just like slapping ads all, all over the place, a little bit more about like what's the context, where's the location, how, how does it make sense? But again, I think we're all aligned. This is a, this is a cool category. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's definitely an interesting category. And uh, and there's also an interesting company, uh, a shout out called Firefly. Um, that's very heavily venture invested. I think they raised like a hundred billion dollars to do mostly oh, yeah. car top and taxi top ads. All right, let's call it. Um, this was an awesome episode. Um, if you don't mind, could you um, give us some star rating? The amount of stars is at your discretion uh, on the on the various podcast apps and a review. Uh, leave a review. <laughs> and a review. Tell your friends. Do that sort of thing. So, Eric Super, thank you so much for being here. Everyone should follow him and uh, subscribe to Mobile Dev Memo. Yeah, cheers. Thanks Thanks very much for having me. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thank you for subscribing to Marketecture. New interviews are added every week at marketecture.tv and your favorite podcasting app.